Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a sunny but cool autumn day here in the capital is Mandy Salt. Mandy works at Little Gems Day Nursery, a family-run children's nursery based in Stoke-on-Trent, Staffordshire, which is an outstanding Ofsted provider. Uh, Mandy, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. Good morning, Scott. No problem. It's such a pleasure welcoming you onto the programme with us. Um, And normally at this point in the show, we dive straight into the topic of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate that we start there because it has been such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But to what extent has it affected you and what you're doing? Well, as we were told in March, we're going to be locked down. However, the nursery sector and the education sector were told, if they could, to keep going to support the NHS and any key workers that were out there. The first thing we had to do was identify who out of our parents were key workers that would need to go to work to make provision for their children first in line in the queue. Now, a lot of our children, uh, their parents were furloughed, mm. so they didn't come in. So the challenge we had was keeping the day-to-day lights on um, and working out who I'd have to furlough within the staff. Now, the staff, um, the only way I could do that was I needed my deputy in and I needed the most experienced team in at the time. Now, we only had about five children to start with. So we decided that um, we'd be okay with maybe two or three Mm -hmm. members of staff. So the rest of them were furloughed and those members of staff um, that were furloughed didn't actually come back. Part of them came back halfway through about June, but the bulk of them have come back during the beginning of September when the new term started and everything was lifted when the government said, okay, off you go, you can go back. So more or less, the logistics side of that for me as a leader was to actually Mm. work out a, who I needed back in to keep us going, and B, sorry, the phone's going, and B, who I needed um, to be furloughed um, to safeguard their jobs, basically, um, through that hot summer. Um, it did gradually increase. We got more and more um, children coming on board from other nurseries were completely closed. Uh, so we brought those children in and used our spare spaces that children were in to bring them back in but obviously there was then we had to put in guidelines who could come in who couldn't and basically nobody could come in Mm. but the staff Um, so it was a case of uh, you stay at the front door um, uh, and you you leave your children with us at the front door unfortunately that's the way we've got to reduce footfall Mm -hmm. coming into the nursery Um, we also brought the temperature checks in um, hygiene stage we brought in PP, more PP. Well, when we could get a hold of it at the beginning, it was um, a bit strange not being able to get hold of what you normally have, mm-hmm. like aprons and gloves. But we did eventually get enough stock we could keep going. Um, 
But as a leader, I had to convince as staff were coming back in, they had to be taught how to come back in. They had to be, they were scared. They were scared. Um, and they're little breeders, children. So they're little breeders of everything going. So, you know, your immune system has to build when you're working in a nursery. Um, and the staff were really scared. So it was a case of me ringing them up and talking to them and saying, look, I know it's frightening, but I'm here. And I'm here if you've got any any queries whatsoever. If you, We were told by the DFE that we didn't need to wear masks because obviously we, we're pouring bubbles in here. So we didn't need to wear the masks um, as for scaring the children. So I said to the staff, if you feel uncomfortable about not wearing a mask, then by all means, I'm not going to stop you. If you want to wear them and it makes you feel comfortable doing that. But having said that, they've come back in and they've said the first day was a little bit strange. Mm. But after that, they were comfortable enough to keep going because they could see all of those that were in before them, how we're coping. I've been in all the time, so just look at me and I'm okay. Because I've done as I'm told, I've followed what the government's told us. We've followed everything that we're being told and what we have to do. And we're okay and the children are okay. It's good to hear that since things have sort of started up again, um, it has picked up and there has been um, kind of a real embracing of the sort of restrictions, the new procedures, and that mentally everybody's holding up okay, because that's been such an important element of all of this. The, yeah. the fact that it's brought mental health and well-being and the discussion over that really back into the uh, the limelight and in leadership again, so important, not just safeguarding that of those around you, but also your own as well. Um, yeah. With regard to the government's leadership through the uh, the pandemic, just to sort of change the subject ever so slightly, um, we've seen a lot of praise for certain measures that they've put in, of course, the furlough scheme being the big one, um, but also a lot of criticism as well for the way that they've handled certain things. Um, with that in mind, do you think that leadership, particularly in the political sense, has been as celebrated and appreciated perhaps as much as it should be in the UK? And I'm actually going to rephrase that. I'm not just going to talk about the political sense, but I'm also going to talk about leadership on the ground in that sense as well. Do you think there's been an okay. appreciation for the government's leadership, but also that of the people who are running businesses day to day like yourself? No, I don't. I, don't. I think that the government, um, they put so much into the beginning of this. I mean, closing the entire country down, literally. Um, apart from education, which we could understand why, we got to support um, the NHS. If we don't support the NHS, mm. they can't go to work. So we understood that. And if you look at it from that sense, from my leadership side, we were putting our staff at risk, really. We were putting us at risk because they're working within the COVID sector. So mm. they are in hospitals and doctors, and they are on front line. And I understand that. But how did we know their children weren't bringing anything back with them? So that's why we had to put measures in to safeguard us, i.e. Mm. the temperature. Uh, the fact that we, we watched if any sign of a cough, but we know it's a continuous cough. What is confusing at the minute, um, which is posing a challenge, especially within early years, is the fact that um, there is flu season coming on. Mm. And we've got flu season, and we know chicken pox will poke its ugly head up again. And we know that, that the coughs and the colds and the sniffles and teasing, et cetera, separating that from COVID separating it from the, the three things that, 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 that you've got to watch for, which is a continuous cough. Um, so I was, I, I indexed it a little bit more and I said, how continuous? And I was told that it's within three hours, within a 24-hour period or longer, 
one bout of coughing longer than a minute. Temperature-wise, because the children are so young, anything up to three months, we're being told it's 39. And in between that, it's 38.5 for the rest of them because children run differently on temperatures mm. than adults do. So that we've had to watch for. And yes, we have had children that temperatures have gone up with normal flu or no, you know, we had them go up as far as 40 before now, before COVID. So actually separating that kind of thing away from COVID has been difficult. Parents are resenting it a little bit because we're, we're bringing them out of work. We're saying you need to go and get them tested. I'm sorry, but we have got to watch these three things. And one of those things is it's ugly head and we, and we can't bring it down with Calpol, unfortunately. Mm. You are going to have to collect them and they are going to have to have a test. Now, to be fair to this test, right, every parent that we've asked to do it has got their child in that day and has had a result within 24 hours. So when I hear them going on on the TV about, yeah, well, we've been here, we've been there, we've been everywhere, so I couldn't get one. Well, okay, not in my experience. Well, that's just my experience. Mm. I think the government have done so, so well. Furlough was a brilliant idea. And Rishi Sunak, we praise you for the half price getting us all back into the restaurant. That was brilliant. I couldn't believe it when we, we actually got away for a few days and we went in to a local Weatherspoons and four of us got food and drink for nine quid. It was like, what? Mm. <laughs> You've made a mistake. But it was. I wasn't expecting it, but I thought, wow, you know, yeah, I can see I got the hospitality because that pub was full that day. It really was. Um, so, no, I don't think they've got it all. One thing I think they might have made a little bit clearer is there is conflicting and confusing information. Mm. So they come on and they say say one thing, and then two days later they're saying another, and we feel like we're a bit on a piece of elastic, really. So we're having to change everything for one thing and then change it again. For it needs to be clearer. What they're telling us needs to be clearer. And they go on schools and that's great but schools are five and above or three and above we're under three they need to be looking at nurseries they need to be looking at how we have to tackle teasing how to tackle um, the, and the things that come in around that how you have to tackle childhood illnesses that don't always show as they should so they may show as potential COVID just so we can clarify we, we need a list of things from them that says this is what you should do this is what you should ask people to go and get tested for. And I know you said the three things, but I, I just feel there's a little bit of confusion. I've sat there some days and I thought, what what, mm. what am I supposed to do with that? Um, but on the whole, I think I think Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party are doing a fab job. I mean, I don't know if people can criticise them when it's worldwide. This economy is going where it's going, but it's not just us. The whole the whole country. Anybody hear Trump the other day? You know what I mean? It's, I can't but imagine what America's going through and everybody else, but we're all going through the same thing and everybody's economy's doing the same thing. So get off the economy bandwagon and let's put a solution in place. Let's get this thing, you know, Mm, I think that's absolutely right. I think we do need to see a little bit more unity at a time like this um, and people actually pulling together. And there has been some real collaboration and, and a sense of national unity rallying around the NHS that we saw earlier in the pandemic. And that's yeah. a spirit that we certainly need to see in future um, as well. And um, one thing I certainly do want to ask um, as well here, uh, Mandy, is that um, with everything that's in place uh, currently within the early years sector, 
even when we do have a working vaccine in place, hopefully within the next 12 months, um, it is likely that given the prolonged anxiety that this is going to cause, that there will be some sort of measures that are in place for quite some time. So the hand sanitizer stations that you're seeing in restaurants and in various premises, that's probably something that's going to be here to stay. People are probably going to be voluntarily social distancing as well, particularly given that the vaccine is only going to be perhaps for older people and frontline workers initially, especially. So with all of that taken into consideration, can you see there still being something of a COVID hangover even when the vaccine is there? Yeah, I think that, I think that we're all going to be very, very close. I honestly think that two metre distance will stick and stick quite fast. Um, I can see people wearing masks. I can see people hand sanitising. I carry it with me all the time anyway because of the sector we're in, but um, I use it more often now. I think the 20-second rule for hand washing, it's all good things. It's health and hygiene. It's not hurting anybody. It's, it's benefiting you. So, yeah, I think it, it will stick. I think those three things will stick. I can certainly see um, where you're coming from from that point of view. It is something that I have asked numerous guests on the programme and it is something that they can see staying in place for quite some time until people do start to become comfortable again. Um, And as you say, it is basic hygiene. So some of the things like, say, hand sanitizer stations in places, people just being a little bit more conscious, perhaps maybe that can only be a good thing going forward from here. I think so. Yeah. Just before, uh, Mandy, we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme, I would like to talk about the, uh, the future in a little bit more depth. Um, because over the course of the next 12 months so we know that at least until there's a vaccine in place um, hopefully by the spring fingers crossed um, we're going to have to persist with what is being called the new normal and how we live and how we work we're still going to be living under certain restrictions Um, so over that period of time and indeed beyond what is it that yourselves at Little Gems are really hoping to achieve over the next few months and where do you see yourselves being this time within a year? Um, well, like I said at the moment, we used to let parents obviously come in. We used to read stories. It's very social with the parents because we're not just here for the children, we're here for them as well. Um, but since COVID hit, obviously, it's drop at the door, pick up at the door. The daily diaries, what the child's done during the day, what they've eaten, how many times they've been to the bathroom, that kind of thing. We put in their bags now um, and they get to read them and keep them at home. So that's something that they used to come in. And they used to talk to us about, and if they've got any concerns, it's a little difficult when it's dropped at the door. So kind of would like to resume that social side of things with the parents, but I can't see that happening yet. I really can't see that happening until next year, um, possibly the spring when it warms up a little bit. Um, but I honestly, I can see the next six months being exactly the same. as well. um, That's just about it, really. Yeah, like I say, I mean, it's very difficult to sort of look into a crystal ball, isn't it, and actually understand what to expect over the year, the next year. So really, we can only sort of wait on it and see what happens and hope for the best in some senses. And um, just given how there are still so many variables in all of this and also just how enlightening it's been having you come on and share your views today, Mandy. I actually think it would be wonderful to welcome you back onto the programme in future just to see how things are coming along maybe in a few months' time. Yeah. That'd be great. Yeah, love to. I'd certainly welcome that. It's been a real pleasure having you on the um, airways with us this uh, morning. I've thoroughly enjoyed your company today. And most importantly, until we do get to touch base again, please do take care and stay safe with everything that's still going on as well. And that goes for everybody associated with the nursery too. We will. We will. Thank you, Scott.
It was an absolute pleasure to welcome Mandy Salt from Little Gem Stoke-on-Trent onto today's programme. I'd also like to reiterate that last message there to every single one of our listeners tuning in. Do please continue to be sensible, stay well and look after yourselves and others. It makes such a key difference in saving lives. Um, Coming up next on the programme today, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders' Council Chairman, Lord David Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, holding numerous senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet during his premiership and serving as the MP for the Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords back in August 2015 and I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. All of that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 
2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm -hmm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's a severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere, 
uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi- interest uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually Uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead Mm. or people being told that they shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top, and that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice, uh, the health secretary often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people 
to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? 
that we don't have a vaccine for, mm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver 
the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent 
professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence with the ability to pull teams around them above all to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it now of course one of the biggest problems secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-semitism problem uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does secure need to do in response Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. 
What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, the thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.